workforce housing, we think fundamentally is, is housing for working people, right? Hence workforce. Now, you know, that's a very simplified version of it. Um, ours is a version where we're, you know, fully focused on the rental housing domain. Welcome to the Wealth Matters podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I am going to talk to Scott Chopin today. Scott is the CEO and founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies, a Long Beach, California-based real estate development company founded in 2000. So definitely before the crash, that focuses <laughs> exclusively on workforce, rental housing communities throughout California and the Western US. And as we all know that we do need affordable housing. That's a big problem in America right now. And, um, you know, I totally agree with Scott what he's doing, especially because I live in California, especially Western US is getting out of hand. It's, it's unaffordable. So uh, welcome, Scott. Great to be here, Alpash. Appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So tell us something funny or interesting about yourself. You know, uh, it's a great question, and I and I I left it like unanswered, like I didn't think about it. Um, so something interesting people might find about me. I'm my 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 big hobby is playing guitar. Oh, okay. Um, I have been playing guitar and r really love blues guitar. So think like Steve Ray Vaughan and that you know genre of of uh, blues. And uh, I haven't been in a band in a long time, um, but for for many many years I I was in bands just for fun throughout college, particularly. So that's sort of you know. In fact, as I'm sitting here looking out there, there's a couple of guitars sitting there. I probably need to get them. <laughs> mounted up here so yeah that would be nice so they can be conversation pieces but that's uh that's something about me but otherwise you know look i'm a, a you know uh by design i'm a pretty boring guy <laughs> <laughs> what was your very first real estate investment you know so this is a great question because one of the things I'll share is that I, I, for many years, always equated investment and development really as the same thing. And they're very, very closely related. So you say multifamily development and multifamily investment, right? To yes. be more refined about it. But as I, but in the last few years, I've really, it's really dawned on me that, that I'm not an investor. I mean, we invest in our own projects. So in that way we are investors, but I've never bought an apartment deal just to buy it and own it. We've always been, in fact, my entire career since I got into the business in the mid nineties professionally has been as a ground up developer. And so we've been fully focused on that. So the answer why I give you that is really the first deal I did was a development deal. Wow. Um, and in Very fact, you, you mentioned before we started uh, about senior housing. So I worked for a company that was a subsidiary of a company that used to be called Kaufman and Broad. They're now called KB Home. Oh, this was an apartment okay. development division of theirs that did affordable housing, like true, like government subsidized, true affordable housing, I call it. And so the first deal I did was a senior housing deal on Elizabeth Street in Fort Collins in Colorado, one of the front range towns uh, north of Denver. Yes. And that was the very first deal I ever did. 
um, and, and put the deal together and actually did a, did a, a joint venture style deal with uh, the company that I ha had worked for previously, Kaufman and Broad, that same company. Uh, they were then called Simpson Housing by that time. So that was really, you know, uh, an example of a joint venture, right? Like, you know, I always recommend people when they're getting into the development space to pair up with somebody who's expert in the space or has capital availability or track record or lending relationships. And so that very first deal I made was, you know, bringing it to uh, Mike Costa, who was the president of that division. Small deal for them, not a big deal, but, you know, for me, it was great, you know, get a deal going, uh, get it launched, um, really prove my capability to put a deal together that ultimately was a successful deal, like it worked, <laughs> which, you know, is always good. Um, so that, that was the first deal. That's awesome. And I'm yeah. glad that you pointed out one thing that I keep telling everyone that real estate is a team sport, right? You, it's not just you. There are a lot of moving parts in the in a deal. So you got to make sure that yeah. you have the right team. And, and uh, if you go further, when you are developing from ground up, you got even more moving parts, right? right? There are a lot of things, permitting, city, the inspection, all kinds yeah. of things which could go wrong, right? So, of course, you know, it makes sense that you work with someone who has done, done it before mm -hmm. and you partner with the right people. Amen. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, I, I totally uh, echo that fact. If I were to look at you know, our success in our workforce housing model, we call it Urban Townhouse or UTH. Really, it's been about building networks, you know, uh, vendors, architects, civil engineers, subcontractors, relationships with the cities. And, you know, we look at our networks and their capabilities to deliver, you know, well in whatever role they play as amplification of what we're doing. Like we have intentions to develop great apartment assets and hold them long-term and produce value for our investors and ourselves. And, you know, the, the better we can have the team around us perform, you know, just makes our, not only do we perform better, but we're amplified, right? Like we can right. do more deals and better deals and find better networks and better capital, um, you know, a virtuous cycle, you might call it. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. <laughs> so uh, dump it down for us, workforce housing. Yeah, so lots of people have different definitions of it. So I love this question. Um, you know, workforce housing, we think fundamentally is, is housing for working people, right? Hence workforce. Now, you know, that's a very simplified version of it. Um, ours is a version where we're, you know, fully focused on the rental housing domain. Um, okay. Certainly workforce housing could cover for sale, but I really think of rental housing as being more coherent with the sorts of incomes that these, uh, you know, these working folks make, and, and we specifically focus on working families. In fact, our product is multi-generational by design, meaning that we're going to house families that have two or more related generations in the same household. Uh, and one of the things I'll share with you, our product is a five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental unit. Oh, so it's, it's okay. an attached row home or there's, you know, homes attached in a, in a row and we, you know, different sizes and groupings of buildings depending right. on the site plan, but all the units are the same three-story configuration. So it's up and down right. lifestyle. Right now, that's what they build everywhere in California, yeah. three-story townhouses. Exactly. So we're, ours just happens to be functionally for rent. In fact, the way I describe it is we design and build it to rent, but it lives like a house, right? We have a two-car uh, okay. garage. We have an in-unit laundry room. 
obviously the five bedrooms, four bathrooms. Um, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, we want the unit from a living lifestyle and design standpoint to live like it's a house, right? Like, you know, uh, you know, the, the joke I make, if the kids are jumping on the bed, you know, upstairs, it's, it's my kids. Yes. <laughs> They're being noisy. You it's, know, no it's, <laughs> it's my family and I can, you know, I can tell them to be quiet yeah, versus, yeah. you know, your standard stack flat, you know, the family above you is, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you don't. Um, but right. they're not, you know, nothing to do with or related to your family. Okay. So, because uh, a lot of people also referred, uh, or maybe I, I may be wrong, but also I hear blue claw collar housing, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, similar. Yeah, so when you say workforce housing, it may be blue collar because. Yeah, we, <laughs> so, we use that term. In fact, I, I call it sometimes, you know, uh, working class housing, right. blue, blue collar, blue collar neighborhoods. In fact, right. one of the one of the you know types of neighborhoods that we we seek out are working class, you know, blue collar neighborhoods. Um, you know, the these multi generational families that we focus on are uh, sort of special in the way that they their lifestyles are already existing, meaning typically it'll be a little bit larger family group, multi-generational, right? But also most importantly is they have multiple earners in the household, right? So these are families that might be, you know, four or six or eight people, um, but they're usually gonna have two, three, four, five uh, wage earners. Now, individually, the wage earner doesn't make enough to afford you know, new housing, right? And the way we right. hear in, in the media, right? Oh, this worker needs to make $50 an hour to be able to afford the standard two bedroom unit in Palo Alto right. or whatever the stat is. Um, I can never remember it changes. But when people start to combine together, the earners either already live together, which is typical, like these families right. live multi-generationally naturally. Like we don't we don't like cause them. They already exist that way. Right. Yes. But then they start to bring all their income together and share it and then pool it. And then, then, you know, cover the expenses right. of the household okay. across the multiple earners. And so one of the stats that we share is a group called Pew research did a study about multi-generational households and the poverty rates amongst multi-generational households is massively reduced from single earner or even dual earner households. And as you'd expect, naturally they have the capability to both generate more income to take care of the family. Um, but also if any one person's laid off or, or reduced hours or loses their job for whatever reason, you know, the family's still able to sustain itself through the other earners. Okay, no, that, that, that makes sense. So uh, I always thought maybe it's a multifamily, but it's not, it's a townhouse style. And the goal is that uh, once you construct it, uh, basically, uh, by the time after the construction is done, you rent it out, and then you are able to sell the entire portfolio? Or, or do you ever try to sell the townhouses by themselves? Yeah, great question. We, we never sell them individually. You know, that would be like condo style. Right. Um, and, you know, you being in California, you're, you know, familiar with co construction defect litigation. Oh, yes. Condos <laughs> and HOAs, like they attract that, you know, almost immediately. But yeah. besides that, we're, we're after producing a rental model, right? That again, it lives like a house, but it's for rent, right? So if a family doesn't have the credit or the down payment to buy a house or, can't afford it because the pricing of that individual condo unit is very high, right? We're still in California. We have high oh, yes. costs <laughs> generally. People become 
you know, renters by default, right? Or they are, you know, that's the lifestyle they choose, right? And, you know, maybe because of its income or other, you know, things that, that produce that in their life. But the reality is, given where we are in California and the difference between housing costs and incomes, right? Particularly for middle income families, there's a very wide gap between those. And so our product solves that gap, or at least gives the capability for families through these multi-earner, multi-generational households to now, <clears throat> now afford a better unit, right? A bigger unit, brand new garage, air conditioning, in-unit laundry. In many mm -hmm. cases, Alpash, these families have never had a garage. Right. They've never right. had an in-unit laundry room. Right, yeah. And we're, we feel really good about that, right? Like people come in and go, look, I've never had a garage. And yeah. they're yeah. super excited about it. That's I know- luxury. Apartments I lived in when I was younger, I never had a garage. I would have, right. you know, I would love to garage. But anyways, that's me. But the reality is that's why we say it lives like a house, right? I always say yeah. to my my leasing teams, if a family had a choice between a single family detached house with a white picket fence in a backyard, and our unit or any unit that's built around like as our style, they'd always choose the house, right? The American yes. dream the backyard, right? You know, summer days, white pick the fence. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but the reality is in California, that house, that example right. <laughs> gave, is even if it's for rent, is very expensive. Yes. And, you know, the supply of rental homes, like single family homes in California is relatively limited because yeah. they're so costly that it doesn't really make sense for most people to invest in a house, like buy it and then rent it. To no, no, I, yeah, no, and that's a great point. That's why I do not invest in California because I'm a <laughs> right. buy and hold investor yeah. and the numbers don't even come close. And mm -hmm. also not only numbers, but, you know, acquiring a, a million dollar house, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket when I can buy five houses for a million right. and I have five tenants paying me, right? Uh, out of state. So uh, yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great point. Another question I have, what's the rental range on uh, this, uh, you know, properties or townhouse? Yeah, so most of our units are five bedroom, four bath. That's like our standard unit, mm -hmm. we do, you know, really in every project, that's the predominance of the unit type. That's a 1,750 square foot unit. And we're right now averaging about $3,500 a month. Okay, so that's good. $2 a foot. Right. And, you know, anybody who tracks California, I mean, that's easily, you know, half the market price. You know, if you said it was 350, four, 450 a foot for something right. new. And again, these are, we're comparing the new right. housing projects that are in the marketplace that, you know, are, you know, are sort of competitive landscape, other new housing. Um, we're deeply discounted. Now, <clears throat> one of the things these families really look at, no, no renter ever looks at a unit on a per square foot basis. Like they right. go, what's oh, my yeah, payment? Yeah. Like you got your car payment, you go, what's my monthly? You know, what, you know, how does that compare to my income? Here's my monthly. But what's interesting what these families do is they really start to think about it almost on a per bedroom basis, right? As yes. They, again, do this economic sharing lifestyle, yeah, yeah. their income and sharing their expenses. They also think of that in the context of, oh, you know, grandma's going to live in that room. Like one, uh, one of the things about our units, uh, always five bedroom for bath, but always one of the uh, bedrooms and bathrooms is on the ground floor. Yes, that's right. very near, important. Now near the front door. So that's, you know, where yep. grandparents or older in-laws would naturally go. It's yeah. also, by the way, great work from home space. Yes. People are working virtually. Yeah, no, but, that's another great point. Because when 10 years ago, when we were looking for a house here, 
it was very hard to find house with a you know ground floor uh, or or one bedroom and one bath we did yeah. find and that's where we live but it was very hard yeah now that i was looking at toll brothers they were constructing uh, they are constructing like seven or eight communities or they did construct and i went to look at every community and you know what i noticed that every community had su- the single family houses yeah had one right. bedroom and one bath downstairs and i asked them like that's the demand now mm-hmm. we have to for cater to the demand because everyone who comes in and asks for it right well we're we're at the hot so there's a stat again pew research but we're at the highest rate of multi-generational living oh really uh, in the united states going back 160 years Whoa. So in other words you know 160 years ago we lived here that we dropped right. way down like, oh, yeah. like the 70s was the low point of multi-generational living and then we've come back up now, you know, the, the, the highest rates in 160 years and what that is coming from is really economics, right? So yes. <laughs> economic yeah. sharing, right? And whether it's, you know, culturally, a family would live multi-generationally or yeah. those who didn't, but, but kids are coming home to live for economic reasons, right? Adult children living with their parents that may not have done that traditionally is now the trend. In fact, I think it was something like, 52% of the millennial generation lives at home, even wow. to their wow. 30s and, and, you know, mid 30s and late 30s, I think is the leading edge of the millennial generation. And I don't know how that compares to, you know, other generations, you know, prior boomers or Xers, but I think the, but, the point of the rate was high, right? But I, I, yeah, the thing you mentioned, and right before this podcast recording, like a couple of hours ago, I spoke with George Newberry. He was one of the guests. Uh, and he brought up the same thing Um, and not he didn't talk about multi-generational but he mentioned that he is half Argentinian and uh, so that's you know that's that's how it works that you know yeah uh, if unless the kids are married they live with the parents and I'm like yeah so I think one thing you pointed is the culturally right so in last 30 years of course culture has shifted to a lot Mm -hmm. of Asians lots of uh, including me right uh, mm-hmm. so culturally we live with you know together that's that's right. how it is well you know, if you are... look at it globally <laughs> alpash like most of the world lives that way right exactly fact, except america that's what george said well right and, and even <laughs> and even if you look at america if you go back prior to like you know the 40s or the 30s and earlier back into you know the years when the nation was founded classically families live multi-generational right it's only in that, you know, post-World War II era in the 50s and 60s that the idea of the nuclear family really became like the trend. Right, yes. But it was really the antithesis, you know, and even I did a study, if you went back to like medieval England or medieval Europe, yeah. the idea of the house as, you know, mom and dad and two and a half kids and a dog and a car and the, you know, in the, in the driveway, <laughs> um, the, the idea of the house itself was you know, you would have borders, you know, like people would stay in your house, like to pay you money, like a, a hotel room, right. you know, it was almost like more like a public house, right? Like people would be coming in and out all right, day long. Right. You had your family, you had your kids, you had your parents, um, you, you had people who, you know, were boarders with you or visitors, right? Um, yeah. So the, even the idea of like the house is this insulated bubble and no one comes into it except you know mom and dad and two and a half kids right is anathema <laughs> historically and culturally across the world in fact i talk to people like you described uh, josh newberry and they're like oh dude this is my family 
Like this yeah. is like, this is us. And so I love that because they really understand it intuitively. Like he, the idea of not living that way is totally foreign to them. Like they were right, like, exactly, what? exactly. We, we wouldn't have grandparents with us. Like that's weird. Yeah. Like no. <laughs> yeah, no. I had to, yeah. When I had to explain some of my friends that my parents, you know, come and live with us, they're like, really? For how long? I said, no, no. For, it's <laughs> is that like a be, permanent thing? Yeah, or what? it's, it's it, that's how it works. It is supposed <laughs> to be permanent. <laughs> yeah. It really is forever. Yes, and we yes. love it. We wouldn't yeah. have it any other way. Yeah, exactly. So let's jump on to the, you know, the meat of the podcast. Mm. How do you underwrite a workforce housing development? So we'll always run a pro forma. Um, just, you know, we, we've built an Excel spreadsheet with several tabs in it that all interrelate cash flows and income and expense summaries, internal rate return analysis. And so, you know, every new deal that we find, we'll find a piece of land that we think, you know, fits from a zoning standpoint and size, location. And then we'll basically do a quick calculation to see what, how many units we can get on the site. And then we'll immediately plug that into a pro forma. And so then the pro forma really just what goes into that is, you know, uh, you know, uh, like, let's say between 50 and 100 variables land costs, hard costs, you know, meaning construction, soft costs, architectural engineering, you know, our interest carry for our loans, um, you know, city fees for development impact fees. And we basically put all that together in the model. And what we're really doing, we're solving really for two things. We're solving what can we offer for the land when right. we're buying the <laughs> land. We want to make sure that is coherent with our returns. But ultimately what we're solving for is the return characteristics to the LP you know, limited partner investors, right? Like to compete with yes. capital in syndication or single, you know, single equity raises or funds similar, um, you know, we need to compete in the market against other, uh, other competitive projects. And so we're really solving for, uh, you know, for an internal rate of return. That's, that's our metric that we, you know, we have others equity multiple and, and, cash, right. and cash, but we really are very focused on an internal rate of return uh, you know, time weighted, you know, return, uh, you know, calculation. And then I'll just also share that a lot of the variables, like think of hard costs and rents and operating expenses that go into any normal multifamily underwriting. We have a good database of, you know, we've now are on our like seventh and eighth projects in this UTH model over the last okay. four years. And so we'll continually update the data received from each new project, both start of construction, completion, and lease up and loan underwriting, all those kind of things. We're just continually updating, feeding new information because, you know, we're really only as good as our database of costs and other things that are, uh, you know, really relevant to the, to the pro forma, but always a pro forma, uh, always used market-based or our own historical proven numbers. And then, you know, I'll finish with just, you know, uh, just being conservative in, in lots of little places, right? Like, so if I got land costs, I'll be a little conservative there. I mean, maybe I buy it, you know, the yeah. land at 3 million, but I'll put it in at 3 million, 150, give myself some room to negotiate. Right. Um, you know, if I get the 3 million, then it's like gravy. I've made some progress in my budget, a hard cost would do the same thing. And then what we do that is because one, it's a safe way to underwrite, like it's not too aggressive and it's not too, you know, conservative, because you can both, you know, make any deal work, right? Like I could plug yes. high rents into any deal and make the deal look great. Yes. But I can also be so conservative that I break every deal, like no yeah. deal works, yeah. right? <laughs> you have to art is somewhere in the you middle. You have to balance like, it, yeah. 
Right, exactly. No, that, that's a great uh, answer. So uh, can you take us through the process of choosing a market or neighborhood and starting development? Right. Sure. That's that's the huge part of it. Once it's ongoing, of course, you have other things, but that's mm-hmm. the big step. Right. Yeah. So that really comes to out of your your main strategy. Right. Like as a developer. And this is one of the differences between a developer and an investor. An investor may pick a market and then they go into that market <clears> and they go, I want a multifamily deal of X number of units and, you know, sort of characteristics, location. But as a developer, you do that. Plus when you find a piece of land, you get to create what the program of the project is, you know, number of bedrooms, you know, number of parking spaces, number of units, right? You design that from whole cloth. And I think that's one of the challenges that people, when they go from the investment world to the development world is they now have to pick that, right? They go, Oh, I'm going to like I'll, I, a conversation I have with a guy. He showed me his design, one of my opinion on it. And he had all, every unit was two bedrooms. I don't even remember where it was. I go, why is every unit two bedrooms? One, it's not diversified, but like right, the, exactly. the basis for that, he goes, oh, well, you know, I just went and visited some projects and they had a lot of two bedrooms. And so I decided that would be the right thing to do. And I go, of course, <laughs> yeah, I understand the logic, but you also happen to be delivering two bedrooms into the highest number of competitive units in that marketplace. We're all right. also two bedrooms. So you got to differentiate is the key, yeah, right? If yeah. you want to compete, Um, differently. Hence why we do the five bedroom, four bath. So we'll find, you know, the strategy, identify the strategy, and then we just go pick specific neighborhoods. Like for us, our product, our UTH product wants to go into blue collar working class neighborhoods, right? In fact, the the way I described is we're an A product in B and C neighborhoods. We do that for a couple of reasons. One, we can get better land prices, right? We don't have as much competition from developers who want to compete with land, but the other big characteristic that we love is that a lot of these sites, we traditionally buy sites that are already zoned for the product type that we want to build, the type of apartments. But we really find a much more welcoming neighborhood, right? The empty lot in the middle of a blue collar neighborhood. A lot of times the, the surrounding neighbors are like, great, we love new housing here. This is fantastic. And, you know, you know, kids are playing out there and getting hurt. You know, people are you know, dumping mattresses and leaving their trash, right? Like attractive nuisance. So a lot of times we'll show up and start to build and people are like, gosh, we're so glad you're here. Right. In fact, when they see it built, they go, oh, hey, I, I might want to move in there. Like, you know, give me a rental <laughs> application. And this is versus, you know, you're in, you're in the Bay Area, California. I mean, you go to build a new apartment building or get it entitled or approved in a, in a, in a higher, even median income neighborhood. And the neighbors will come out and they want to fight you. Like That's exactly down. where I was going. Right. NIMBY, right? Not in, back, in my backyard. Do you, uh, yeah. do you, yeah, have, uh, do you see that as well while you're building We don't. We, okay. we really, because the, like specifically okay. because of these neighborhoods, um, I mean, the first thing is we buy sites that already have zoning. Okay, so got it. They don't even have any, they can't even right. have an opinion. They can't about vote. <laughs> it. But when we do on occasion do rezones, it's usually the, na- again, the neighbors are like, this is great. This empty lot was, you know, bad news or, yeah. you know, really wanted to see something going there. And, and by the way, when we're done, Alpash, we're always the best new building in the neighborhood, right? That's awesome. Yeah. Older. You know, the, the neighborhoods haven't been improved, you know, blue collar, older, you know, housing, older commercial. Uh, so when we're done, we're always like the sexiest new building in the entire neighborhood. So that's cool, too. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's always good. How difficult or easy 
is it to get permits and approvals for for this type of development maybe state city um you know county <laughs> yeah so it's all, always city or county okay. um, the state has laws that affect us but they're they're not directly not much, like, yes right. we don't go to them for permission directly it's always right. the city or the county if it's an unincorporated um so the answer like it's it's a couple answers if you have a zone site that you know what we call buy right which you know it already allows your apartment right. design maybe you know a little bit of you know change here and there then it's not easy i think california always has a higher level of friction <laughs> meaning just things that you know drag on your project either time yeah. or, or costs or both right so california is like the most notorious in yes. the entire united states for that but if you have a site that's not zoned and you have to go to a rezone zone, or okay. general plan amendment, when you get into the political process, then it's brutal. I mean, California okay. is like the absolute worst. Um, there's, there's basically California has been undersupplied in our housing production for like decades. Right. Um, in fact, yep. uh, Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies did a study of Southern California, and they basically came up with the metric that Southern California was a, had a million unit shortfall, meaning Ooh. we needed to build a million more units just to sort of catch up with all the undersupply right. that we've experienced over the last, really since probably the mid seventies. Wow. wow. And so for us, you know, we're developing into that. And if you can make the model work and produce great returns, which our UTH model does, we're almost like alone. Like when we go into a blue collar neighborhood and we're building an apartment building for all, all intents and purposes, there's no competition around us. Neighbors generally welcome us. Uh, we're delivering product into an undersupplied marketplace. And, you know, we've got families that don't have this housing choice, you know, otherwise, right? That they, when they find us, they're like, man, this is great. So we, by design, have started to fill a part of the marketplace that's really uh, high demand, low supply, right? Undersupply is a key right. component of what we do. And, you know, I can't say that's going to last forever, but there's a reason people don't like California. I mean, you talked about the high housing cost, you know, to invest or the high housing prices. That's true. And that's because we're constrained, right? Right. Uh, supply is limited. Yeah. But if you can operate inside of that, it's almost like you have a moat, right? Like the, right. the, the, the Warren Buffett idea of a, a moat around your business, meaning right. that competition can't, you know, come into your space easily and compete with you directly in your business. And that's not that say that developers can't compete with us. They can. And we don't hold any, you know, we don't right. try to fool ourselves and say, hey, nobody's going to compete with us. But, you know, invariably people come from outside of California and they're like, man, it looks hard. And I don't even know, you know, and they they turn tail and, and, and go back to, you know, Texas or wherever they're from. Right. And, so, you know, fine. It's not a bad decision. I don't say they're right or wrong, but like for us, we go, that's good because we figured out how to compete in this space. Right. I mean, we're from so here. I, so, you know, I got a couple, couple more questions. Uh, one is sure. uh, how, what's the typical timeline uh, from start to finish, you know, the construction itself. And yeah. then for how long do you hold before selling the entire thing? Yeah, so construction, mm. depending on the size of the project, but we usually like to do, we do, you know, projects anywhere from 15 to 90 units, like that okay. would be the range of project sizes. And then once we get to like, we have an 85 unit project right now, we'll divide that up into a couple of phases, like, you know, 31 and 54 of the phases. So we look to be about 12 to 16 months for construction. Okay. This is actual go out on site day one grade to the day that it's done and turn 
turned over to the leasing team. Uh, we like to be between nine and, you know, 12 months if we can okay. per phase. In fact, sometimes we'll phase them to create that timeline. Overall, our project timelines from start, like identification of land to completed and stabilized fully leased is two to three years. Okay. Um, and then your last question was about hold. Um, we are such firm believers in this, in this product category, workforce housing, and that undersupply situation that we're in that we really want to keep these things forever. So oh, about okay. two and a half years ago, we converted every every development project that we're in into a long-term hold. And so we're raising capital between five and 10 years is the, you know, sort of the range of timelines for the investment window for LP capital. But we'll basically build in a, uh, a mechanism where we can buy the investors out at the end of the investment window and, and continue to own it. Like we, we want to own these in perpetuity. Got it. So, so you are still an investor. I know you mentioned you are, you are not an investor, but you are buying yeah. and holding. Yeah. We're assets. an investor in our own projects. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So you are still holding the asset. Right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Oh man. Awesome. We're, we're, we're super believers in multifamily in supply constraint, California. Okay. Got yeah. it. Awesome. We're, yeah. Now, this was great. So let's take a quick break. And after the break, we will go through the same five questions I ask every guest. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S.com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. And I was talking to Scott Chopping about workforce housing and he had really interesting uh, points to share. I was actually fascinated as myself. So Scott, are you ready for fire round? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Would you be changing business or investment strategy after coronavirus is over? Uh, we will not actually. Our unit type, five bedroom, four bath, is actually roommates who are working virtually and professionally are, have found our product type. And it really is accelerated as a work from home space, in addition to the families that we've talked about already. Um, this has been a big growth area for us. So we're, we're not only not changing it, but we're actually expanding the, the, the UTH business plan you know, as much as we can. Uh, you know, as a function of the pandemic. That's awesome. So favorite real estate or finance or any other related book? So there's a book I love. I was, I was thinking about this question. Um, there's, a, there's a family called the Reichman family. Uh, and they're basically a Canadian-based uh, real estate development company out of Toronto. So there's a book called uh, The Reichman's Family Faith Fortune and the Empire of Olympia and York. Olympia and York was their company name. Oh, but if anybody okay. ever wanted to get into how developers are and what they do and sort of deal making at a high level, uh, Paul Reichman was the like the the patriarch of the family and like a brilliant deal maker in that sort of 60s, 70s, 80s era, which is to me is like the heyday of real estate yes. development. They were big right. office developers. Great book, you know, obviously a lot about the family. And they're, you know, uh, you know, obviously being, you know, Orthodox uh, uh, Jewish, uh, and that's sort of big part of their story. But amazing where they went, you know, building small buildings into, you know, massive, you know, okay. uh, Canary Wharf. You I know, will have to read building it. Building projects in London. So good book. I'll have to read it. Any tool or website you recommend? 
uh, or you cannot live without. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of sites that I use for economic tracking. So one is called EconPi. So it's E-C-O-N-P-I dot C-O-M, I believe. And basically they have a, a graph that they do called the bar uh, analysis grid. And what they do is they take 20 to 25 economic variables. They put them on a table and then they graph them and they graph them to demonstrate the economic cycle moving from peak to trough and from recession to oh, wow. growth marketplace. Great tool. I mean, just killer. And then the other one I uh, always recommend is called Calculated Risk Blog. It's written by a guy named Bill McBride. And, you know, he's not an economist, but he's like an ex-Fortune 500, you know, business person, very pragmatic, uh, great focus on housing, great graphs. Uh, Bill does the best graphs of anybody I track, but he's just, he's, he's not a professional economist, uh, but he's a very pragmatic, you know, view of the world. And, and he basically is a, a good prognosticator about housing trends and housing cycles. Definitely worth taking a look. Oh, I'm, I'm excited about the five round because the very first time you know, I heard different type of book as well as I heard different types of websites other than okay. what I had. <laughs> so actually I ended up opening EconFi right now and calculated riskblog.com. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Great sources. And the next question is very important. Uh, any advice for beginner investors? Mm. Yeah. So I think it sort of harkens back <laughs> to what we talked about before, whether you're a developer or investor is, is think, uh, very much about pairing up with people who, <coughs> sorry, people who know the business. So joint venture, whether you get somebody as your mentor, whether you're intern from somebody, uh, if people want to go to my LinkedIn profile under Scott Chop and uh, go to the articles that I've written section, mm -hmm. there's a article in there uh, called six ways to build your real estate development career. And some of this, you know, data I'm giving you or some of these, you know, techniques I'm giving you come out of that. But the idea of pairing up with people who know that part of the business really well and learning from them while you're also starting your career doing early deals. Um, Michael Blanc has a great podcast and uh, he's a very big believer in that JV structure. You know, better to have a small piece of a bigger deal, learn, you know, sit shoulder yes. to shoulder with somebody who knows, um, you know, mitigate risk. Uh, you know, pair up with people who know really well how to do this or that or whatever or can raise capital. Um, I think people, you know, look, the reality is entrepreneurs in real estate, if they have that personality type or self-selected, you know, go-getters, self-starters, you know, and, and so I just encourage people to get out of that go it alone mode, right? right. Like, lone wolf is weak. So working with others and, you know, two is better than one, you know, teams are better than individuals, for successful businesses, higher probabilities of success are always increased by pairing up. That's awesome. How do you give back? You know, so one of the things about UTH is I'm very encouraged about, you know, we, we don't talk about it a lot, but it has a social impact characteristic. So I'm very encouraged to be able to be helping families to find a living situation in our units that really helps them sustain their, their, you know, their family lifestyle, right? I'm a big believer. I have three kids. I've been married for 27 years. So I'm a huge believer in family. So that's one way that I give back. And that's part of our business offer. Um, the other way I give back is I, you know, I'm a, you know, fairly heavy user of social media. 
And I'm really ambitious about, you know, when I see people who have different situations that they're in, uh, GoFundMe type situations, um, you know, there's some veteran, uh, you know, organizations that we support. So we really just like to give to, you know, specific groups that are after helping people that are in, you know, unfortunate situations. So we do a lot of that kind of work. How can my listeners reach out to you? So I would encourage people uh, to go to www.urbanpacific.com forward slash ebook. Uh, if you go there, uh, we're offering an ebook for people who uh, will get on our subscriber list for our email blasts that come out on Saturdays. But the ebook is how to survive and thrive in a recession, which I think is a great subject matter and where we are now and in 2021 and the you know sort of mid post pandemic era. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurial lessons that we learned from the 2008 great financial crisis, which was a very heavy duty real estate centered uh, recession, like, you know, the most extreme, even more extreme in some cases than in now, particularly in residential. Um, so go there. And then when people are on our website, check out our investor education section, tons of videos and articles that sort of bridge, you know, investment and development, right? As people think about, oh, I'm an investor and thinking about getting in development, we spend a lot of time sort of educating and providing, you know, materials, videos, articles about, you know, making that transition, how to be an effective investor and in development deals. And then we, we do talk a lot about the economic cycle and tracking economic conditions, because that's, you know, for anybody in real estate, but particularly development, there's a lot of exposure to the economic cycle, Right. So like the econ pie website, you know, that's like, we write about that kind of stuff and we'll sort of curate information about the economic cycle. So our Saturday e-blast has a lot about, you know, what's going on, new trends in the marketplace, new trends in real estate, even new trends in technology and like prop tech, fintech, um, economic cycles, you know, observations of things that we're seeing. Um, you know, that's just part of what we do like regularly, like internally for our own purposes. So we make sure we're doing the best possible business that we can. And then we just share that out, you know, pretty aggressively out into the marketplace. Thank you so much, Scott. We are out of time, but this was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing!